It is indeed a treat and a privilege and an honor to greet you again in the name of the Lord. Some of you have been very patient with us. I can't believe this is now session number seven. Seven's a perfect number, so that's why we did it this way. I, uh, a, a kind of climactic session. I have never done this one in a church before. So, I'm a bit self-conscious because we are already in a building that has been designed and built for worship. And so, I'm, I'm very self-conscious about making people feel guilty. <laughs> but on the other hand, by the time we're done, you'll look around and to what extent are we actually, do we have a theology of worship represented in the building? It's a good question. People who design churches these days, for the most part, have a very thin theology. And we're very pragmatic. And the, and the, and the building doesn't state much except that we can all sit here. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How does the place we worship celebrate the presence of the Lord? And that's what worship, worship is all about, celebrating the presence of God. Let's pray before we begin. We thank you, Lord, that you have set aside a place for your name to dwell. This is it. We ask, O oh Lord, that this place would bring great glory to your name and to declare to the world your mercy. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. How does the place we worship celebrate the presence of the Lord? Those of you who have been bored out of your minds the last few sessions, I remind you of my explanation of what biblical worship is. In my view, true worship involves reverential human acts of submission and homage before the divine sovereign in response to his gracious revelation of himself and in accord with his will. That's a big mouthful. If that is right, what implications does it have on this space? That's our question today. And of course, I'm all for a biblical theology of worship. I don't care much about how in the history of worship we've done it. Ultimately, mine is a back-to-the-Bible movement. But that creates serious problems because the Bible doesn't actually tell us much about how we should design our churches specifically. Well, does that mean it has nothing to say? I think the important thing here is that we begin thinking theologically about all of space, all of life. I'm going to begin with Eden as a sacred space, as sacred space. Now, I do have some, a colleague or two, and others have written on this, who think that Eden was the first temple. I don't think so. You don't need a temple in a perfect world. The temple is God's solution for an estranged relationship. 
so that ultimately it becomes a microcosm of heaven giving us a vision of Eden. It's a brilliant combination of the dream that was lost. You don't need a temple when the world was created because everything is in order. God comes to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day and he just converses with them because all is natural. It's as if he is the heavenly landlord coming and seeing how his tenant is doing. Everything's perfect. You don't need a temple. God can come and go as he pleases. It's his world. That's what makes the whole world sacred. God made it. His hands touched it. Therefore, it's sacred, but doesn't make it a temple. Eden is particularly sacred space. How do you envision Eden? Here's how I envision Eden. Judging by the information we have in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, Eden looks something like that. We begin with the world. That rectangle with round corners is the world. The world beyond. And it's probably a world of non-order because you see the text says God created human beings, and then he said, uh, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. You know, that sends a signal that there is something out there in the world while it is created good, something has a tendency to get out of control. And we're put here to see to it that this wheel runs smoothly, keep it greased. That's our job. Keep the world. So, you've got E, and that's the world out there, a world of non-order. It's probably not chaos, but it is not uh, subdued and ordered. So, and then we come, and God puts into this world Eden in the east. It's not the world. The whole world isn't Eden. It is Eden in the world in the east. And into Eden, he plants a garden. Eden isn't the garden. The garden is in Eden. Gets very confusing. Then, within the garden, there is a source of a river. Now, if you know anything about water, water usually runs downhill, which suggests that the source of the river is really up on top of the mountain. And it runs down. So in Eden, there must be a mountain. And then in the garden, it divides, the river divides into four rivers. And again, this is counterintuitive. Tributaries come together. This is the opposite. It starts as a common source, and then in the garden, it splits, and you get these four rivers that water the whole world. This is a sacred world. It doesn't make it a temple, but everything is holy because God has touched it. God has made it. And he puts us in the middle of the garden to govern the world. This is the royal capital from which the rule of God is to go to the ends of the earth, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. No other creature is commanded to fill the earth. I mean, no other species. But we are. Fill the earth that we might govern the whole world for God as he would were he personally present. 
Now, that's, that's the bird's eye view. Here's a sheep's eye view of the world. If you look at it from the side, something like this. Here's the source of the river going down in the, in the garden. It splits into four waters eating, and it goes to the whole world from the top down. Maybe this is why later on, when we get temples, guess where they're always found? On the hill, on top of the mountain, the highest point. That's an impulse here. So, that's Eden. Some people argue that Eden is a sanctuary like the temple, but if you look at the next slide here, you'll see that there are actually some differences. Here is Eden. You have gradations of, shall we say, sanctity. The whole world is sacred, and then Eden is specially sacred, and the garden in Eden particularly so. In the temple, you've got one more dimension. You've got the whole world out there, then the court of the temple, then the great room, and then the Holy of Holies, in which is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne of God in a fallen world. This is God's gracious plan for a world in revolt. He says, though you have spat in my face, I want to live with you. And in his mercy, he provides the temple as a symbol of his presence. But it's interesting, that temple is designed with as, as a microcosm of the heavenly temple, Hebrews tells us that, but we could have got that already from, from Exodus chapter 25. Moses is on the mountain, and the Lord lifts, opens up the windows of heaven, and they show, I think he shows them the real reality, the heavenly temple. And then he tells them, build a replica. You know the word replica? It's hockey time. Today is the last exhibition game before the regular season starts. And in Chicago, we're quite happy these days about how hockey is gone. I'd like to meet Johnny Taves one day. He comes from a small town, southern Manitoba, where we lived for 10 years, and his grandparents are still there, whatever. Humble, very humble family. But uh, if I were to meet Johnny Taves and he'd invite me to his house, he would say to me, come on down and let me take you into my great room, my rec room or whatever, and on the mantle you'll see my three Stanley Cups. And you say, what? You have three Stanley Cups? And of course the answer is no, he doesn't. There's only one Stanley Cup, and it's a very storied trophy. There are, there's more intrigue. This is a Harrison Ford kind of story, the Holy Grail. There's only one Stanley Cup. But if you go down to Johnny Taves' uh, den, he will, he, he'll show you something that's about 18 inches tall. No, the real deal is big. And it grows because every year they've got to put the names of, the, of, of all the members of the team on it so it keeps growing. There's only one that's under lock and key in Toronto. <laughs> it's a replica. It's not the real deal. But when you see the replica, you have an idea of what the real deal is like. This is why Hebrews is such a great book, because 
Hebrews says, now that the real deal has happened, we don't need any more replicas. What happened in the temple, tabernacle, were replica actions of a real heavenly sacrifice that made forgiveness available to Israel. True forgiveness. What a gospel. They were forgiven. Well, Eden is not a temple. You don't need a temple. Everything's in order. The temple is God's provision for a fallen world. All right, let's go on. Where else shall we go? Uh, oops, my, I keep pressing the wrong buttons here. Um, sacred space in the patriarchal narratives. That's Eden. Did Abraham have temple? Did Abraham worship in a temple? What did Abraham do? Wherever God met him, he set up a memorial. The Lord is here. Jacob, at Bethel, he, has, he lies down with a stone on his pillow, and he sees this, he has this dream of a, it's not a ladder. Can you imagine angels going up and down a ladder, both directions at the same time? That's dangerous. It's probably a ramp going up this temple tower. And he wakes up and he says, surely this is the house of God. And he calls it Beth-El, house of God. Wherever God's people are, their God is. You thought that was a New Testament doctrine. I've got news for you. It's from the beginning. Wherever God's people are, God is. Let's go to the next one. Uh, uh, Mount Sinai is sacred space. That was some worship service at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. Here, finally, they're at this place, and the Lord says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Oh, that's the point. Did you know that God did not call Israel to keep the commandments? That's not why he called them. He brought them to himself. Long before he even had commands. And then he says to them, now then, if you'll keep my covenant and do my will and listen to my voice, oh, we tend to think that means only keep my commands. I'm so glad that when God speaks, it's not only command. Deuteronomy 7, or 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of these statutes and ordinances, all these laws that we have to do? What's the point? Then you shall say, we were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. Hey, I didn't ask about that. I asked about the laws. And Moses says, I can't talk about the laws without talking about the gospel first. It's always that way. Always gospel first. So, so the Israelites come to Mount Sinai, and the first thing they hear is gospel. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. For a moment, Sinai becomes a palace, a replica of the heavenly reality. God steps down, and where God is, there is holy ground. Take off your shoes, Moses. And the Israelites, 
pre they prepare three days for this appointment with God. There's nothing casual about this appointment with God. And for a moment, Sinai becomes the temple. Here you see the gradations. Not everybody goes to the top of the mountain. There is, it is a graded world. You've got the world out here, then the people of Israel down at the base of the mountain. Oh, the 70 elders, when it's all over, they go up, the 70 elders go up, and they eat in the presence of the Lord. But only Moses himself is at the higher level, not even Joshua and Aaron can go up. But this is that graded world of sacred space. And this becomes the model for sacred space in the First Testament, the Old Testament, where you've got these gradations. All the world is holy because God made it. Then you've got the court, the, court, the, the, the temple court. Then you've got the temple building. Then you've got the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And each of these is holier than the previous. So by the time you get to the middle, in fact, in this Whoops, we, we, yeah, here's a bird's eye view, or sheep's eye view, that up there only God is really at the top. Not even Moses can go to the top. Only God is there. And there is this cloud and darkness that shields the people, protects the people from the lethal dose of divine holiness. The radiation would kill Israel. So in his mercy, God puts this cloud and darkness to protect them. This is very sacred space for 15 months. And then the glory of the Lord lifts, and it goes, and the Lord says it's time to move on, and they keep moving. That's the Mount Sinai as sacred space. The tabernacle as sacred space. The tabernacle. I know we get very preoccupied with all the little features of the tabernacle, and we ask ourselves, how does the, the gold here represent Christ? And we interpret everything Christologically. I've got news for you. The Bible never does that. The Bible looks at the tabernacle and sees a theology, of, a spiritual theology there, a big picture. And it doesn't tell you about the symbolism of every little detail. But every little detail is magnificent. The gold and the silver and the royal blue and the purples and the magnificence. And you've got uh, increasing preciousness of even the curtains as you get to the center. The tabernacle, in the ancient world, temples were not places where people would gather. That's not why you build a temple. You build a temple so that the God has a home among his people. Well, what kind of home does the Lord deserve? The most magnificent home imaginable. So that everything about the tabernacle was intended to scream, Glory! As they say in Missouri. Glory! The heavenly king lives here. So don't go fussing about the specific significance of, of acacia wood and all the rest of it. That's not the point. Hebrews doesn't do that. Why should we? 
This is God in his mercy coming and living among human beings so that when you come to the temple you, or the tabernacle, you get an image of who this great God is. But the problem with the tabernacle is you have to be able to put it in a suitcase. So how can you do that? The tabernacle is a portable palace where God lives. But have you ever noticed the design? Uh, the whole tabernacle is a divine thing. God designs it. God inspires people to create it. It's divine in every detail. The design of it is very intentional. And I, I'll give you a diagram here of the design. This is adapted from Jacob Milgram, the foremost Jewish scholar on the book of Leviticus. <laughs> And he's wrote, written a three-volume commentary on Leviticus. The total is about 1,800 pages published, not just a manuscript. But this is his design. This is the tabernacle, the ground plan. When you look at that, what, what impresses you? Anything. What's one word? Symmetry. Order intentionality. Notice there's nothing chaotic here. It's divided into two parts. At the first rectangle here, this is the front court, the outer court. Right in the middle of it is the altar. The second part is divided in, it's, it's also a square, and if you draw a line from this corner to this corner, what's right in the middle? The Holy of Holies. This is the outer court. This part in here, this is the actual tabernacle. This is what they carried around with them. There's the Holy of Holies, the altar and the Holy of Holies. The altar symbolizes the problem. The Holy of Holies symbolizes the grace. God, in the midst of his people, has provided a way of cleansing because he wants Desperately. Does God ever get desperate? He wants so passionately to have fellowship with his people. But this, this is not built to house lots of people. The congregation. When they all gathered, they were all outside the court. But it's the, it's the symbolic significance. The Lord lived in the midst of the camp. What a brilliant. Of course, I read the New Testament. Wonderful devotional material. The Word became flesh and dwelt. That's a strange word. It's not really a Greek word. Tabernacle. You've made a Greek verb out of a Hebrew noun and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that Jesus is the embodiment of everything the temple represented. Of course, this is why once we get to the New Testament, we don't need that temple anymore. Because the real deal is here. It's a temporary thing. So that's the tabernacle. It's a magnificent, it's, an, it, it, it's a stroke of genius. It's a palace in a suitcase. 
but let's go to the temple. You call it, uh, well, here's um, a, a picture of how the temple in its design, this is by my colleague uh, John Walton, this is how he envisions it. This is the cosmos. This is heavens. That's the real temple. Here is the earthly temple, which is intentionally drawn as a microcosm, a replica of the heavenly, so that when you see worship happening on earth, you get a picture of the true. It's the opposite of what you have in Revelation. There you have a picture of worship in heaven, and that gives us inspiration for how we ought to do it on earth. But the whole business is an object lesson on heavenly realities. The design of sacred space is not an accident. It's all by design. Let's go on to the next picture. Um, the, the design. Here's, here's uh, let's move on to the next one. Here's, here is the, the temple and the tabernacle in their proportions. This whole, th uh, where's, where's my, this whole thing is the original tabernacle court. Tabernacle court. That's the size of it. When Solomon builds David's temple, it's not Solomon's temple. Solomon is to the temple what Bezalel was to the tabernacle. He's the craftsman. He's the gopher. He's a, the guy who does what David... First Chronicles 28 says, The Lord revealed to David in writing the blueprint. I wish we had that. Not all inspired texts are in the Bible. There's an inspired text. We don't have it. Well, here. I, well, the outer line, that's the court. This is the temple. The whole, that's how big, massive it was. It ate up virtually the whole court. This is now the tabernacle, but within the temple, that tabernacle would have been housed, and here is the Holy of Holies. Again, notice the perfect symmetry and perfect arrangement. Let's go to the next diagram. Here, this is the Jerusalem floor plan. You notice what's going on. You've got these two pillars up front, a wider gate, a narrower gate, and the gates get narrower and narrower until you get to the back because fewer and fewer people are allowed in there. In fact, the high priest isn't allowed in that back room but once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's where the throne is. No one is worthy to enter there. And that's why Yom Kippur, which we just had this past week, is a high and holy day. That's the, the, that's the floor plan of the temple. Here's a side view of the temple. This is Lane Rittmeyer's side view. This is the front porch. Then you move in. This is a holy place. And this is the Holy of Holies, which was actually a cube. Perfect square, any way you look at it. A cube on, in which was enthroned the Lord. Here again, you have the territorial gradations of holy. As you move from the outside in, stuff gets holier and holier. And access 
more and more limited because no one can tolerate the lethal dose of divine radiation. So it's for people's sake that God protects them. He is so desperate, he wants to live among them, so the tabernacle and the temple is a brilliant plan by which somebody absolutely holy can live in a world that is so tainted by sin and protected from that. Okay, let's go to the next one then. The first temple, a sacred space, we talked about. The temple is the residence of God. We don't know much. Well, here's Ezekiel's temple. I spent a few years living with Ezekiel, and by the time I was done, my kids thought I was as nuts as Ezekiel. Um, if you give us uh, the next uh, slide here. The temple was destroyed in 586, and Ezekiel has this vision of the heavenly temple, and, and at the end, he's actually given a tour of the temple. That's that heavenly reality. And of course, your writer is going to ask, are we going to have this temple rebuilt? I don't know, actually. This, there is nothing in the text that tells us that this is a blueprint for a future temple. It's a vision. And Ezekiel is got to make a huge theological statement in which after the judgment, everything is back in place. This is a remarkable temple because it's a perfect square. But guess where the heart of it is? You draw these two lines, it's in the altar. I thought, once the real deal had happened, we need no more sacrifices, which is a reminder to me that I don't look for a future temple like this. It's, it's a way of describing for Ezekiel's generation, using vocabulary they understand, how everything in that ultimate date will be perfect. God will be dwelling in the midst of his people. This place will be called Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Holiness has been restored. Well, let's go on then. Let's go to Herod's temple. We still have remnants of Herod's temple in a picture here from the Holy Land. Some of you have been there. You've seen the Dome of the Rock. It's right in the mid on, on top of this Mount Moriah where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. This is the, the place where David bought the threshing floor of Arauna. And that became the location of the Holy of Holies. This is what it looks like today with the, the big mosque over there. That's right where the temple would have stood. But let's, let's talk for a moment about Herod's temple. This is the temple that, uh, give us the next slide. This is the temple that would have been in existence in the time of Christ. This is Lane Rittmeyers. He's the foremost authority on all things design and architectural in ancient Israel. What impression do you get? Compared to what you've seen? It's, where's the symmetry? It's so cluttered. It's got lots of problems. Problems like 
court of the women. Where's that come from? Since when are women segregated in worship? Now, when I was growing up in the Mennonite Brethren Church in northern Saskatchewan, we were segregated. In fact, we had two, we built a new church in 1953. Some of you weren't even a twinkle in your mother's eye then yet. But we built a new church, and the new church had two entryways, one for the women and one for the men. It had one long porch right across, but I was a teenager at the time, well, 53, I guess I was 10, not quite a 10 but when we became teenagers, there was an imaginary line on that front porch between, between the women's section and the men's section, and we dared our friends to step over that imaginary line. And the men would sit on one side and the ladies would sit on another. Except for people who had little children, there was a benches at the back for people so that mother and father could take care of the kids together. But that's, that's the design we have. Well, where's that come from? Where does this come from? Court of the women. There's a separate court of the Gentiles. When you read about the worship space in the Old Testament, it's always you all come. There is no segregation. There is segregation in terms of who can minister. But the worshipers Come, bring your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, the alien who is in your midst. Bring them all that they may participate together in this family event. It's always inclusive. When Paul says, in Christ there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, born nor free, he's not fixing an Old Testament problem. He's fixing a problem that developed in the intertestamental period so that by the time of Christ, men, every morning they would say, give, express their thanks to God, I thank you that you didn't create me a dog or a woman. The, the misogyny, where's that come from? And I talked to Elaine Rittmeyer one time, and I, when, when I saw his design of this, I said, isn't that court of the Gentiles part of that same problem? And his answer was exactly right. Something happens between the Testament in Judaism that puts women in their place and keeps them there. That's not the Old Testament image. It's always, y'all come together. So, Herod's temple wasn't designed by God. It was a political statement. He wanted to pacify the Jews, so he built them the temple. But he built it the way he wanted it to build. So, it reflects the glory of Herod. You know, when Jesus is crucified, when he dies, remember what happens? The veil tears in two. What's the significance of that? Well, some, I mean, I, I think it has more than one significance, uh, one of which is now we have all gained access directly through the work of Christ, no longer the veil. But I think the other thing is to show the sham of this whole business. There never was any divine glory in here. It's empty. Christ is the glory that we've been waiting for, and finally he is here. So that's Herod's. I'm fascinated. The other thing is that this... This is how Rittmeyer designs it. 
I'm wondering if that's right. If it is right, there's something wrong. In Ezekiel's temple, it's very specific. When you build that temple and you build the altar, it has steps up from only one side, but they're from the east. This is west, this is east. You've got to turn that altar around 90 degrees so that the ramp is here and it is centered here. Why is that? Because when the priests are officiating in the temple, you never want to have a hint of their backs to the temple. So that as they bring their animals up to the top of the altar, they're always facing the holy place. Never off to the side, certainly not with your backs to the wall. There's something fundamentally flawed with this one, if this one is correct. Um, so, in, in any case, but when Rittmeyer does David's temple, he calls it Solomon's temple, uh, when he does Solomon's temple, he has the altar off kilter like this too, and I, I think that's a problem. But then who am I to correct Rittmeyer? I know nothing. Now we get to the New Testament. What does the New Testament do about the temple? It does several different things. One, Jesus and his followers continued to worship in the temple. Did you ever notice that? Until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, Christians went there. You would come to Jerusalem and you want to worship God as a Christian, you would go to the temple. Paul does this between his journeys. You go to the temple. People do that. So it's not like they have uh, dismissed it right off the bat. That's one thing. Second, Jesus and his followers criticized the abuse of temple worship. That's all over the Gospels, isn't it? A house of prayer you've made into a den of thieves. You've transformed its significance. It's a problem. Third, um, Jesus and his followers speak of the replacement of the temple. I said the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we beheld his glory. So the temple loses its significance ultimately. In fact, Hebrews tells us no more sacrifices. It's all done. Once you've got the real deal, you don't need the replicas. In fact, going back to the replicas is an act of unbelief. Rejection of Jesus, who is the real. So, and Hebrews declares the end of shadow temple worship. I heard a story about Chinese and Christians, the mainland, who had rediscovered Leviticus. So they decided on a Sunday morning they'd bring a goat and they sacrificed the goat. They thought they were doing right. But it's a problem. All of a sudden you get so carried away with a new gospel you've discovered that you think, we've got to do this literally. No, in Christ. I keep the Old Testament sacrifices by celebrating Jesus as the fulfillment. The lamb slain. 
That's the fulfillment. What else can we say? The book of Revelation describes worship in the true heavenly temple. Will it be that way for us? I mean, ultimately, I don't expect to spend eternity in heaven. Do you? When we all get to heaven. In the intermediate state, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's great. But we were created to be earthlings, not heavenlings. So when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, that's it. That will be sacred space, everything redeemed as it's supposed to be. If we look at sacred space in the earliest church, I am convinced the devil invented the clock. <laughs> Is that orthodox theology? Absolutely. It keeps running ahead of us. I'm fascinated. Archaeologists, they were going to, they were going to build uh, a new building at the Megiddo pr prison. At Megiddo, there's a prison. And they started excavating, and they came across the oldest Christian house of worship in Palestine that we know of. And this dates to about 230 A.D. C.E., which we use the common era. I call it the Christian era. B.C.E., before the Christian era. And uh, C.E., the Christian era. This is from date 230 B.C. The interesting thing is on the floor of this building, there is an inscription, magnificent inscription. It says, and Akeptus is the person who built it, the God-loving, God-fearing, the God-loving Akeptus. Akeptus has offered the table to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. That is the oldest extra-biblical witness to Jesus as God that we have. And this prayer chapel was built in his honor. It's an early sacred space. What else can we say? Let's look at the basic design of Jewish synagogues, and a lot of what Christians do in church comes ultimately from the Jewish synagogues after the temple was destroyed. Well, actually, they had synagogues long before the temple was destroyed. Every community had a synagogue where Jewish people would gather for reading of Scripture, whatever. This is the design, of typical design of a Jewish synagogue with a holy ark, up here with a Torah scroll. We talked about this yesterday, complete with a crown on the, on the scroll often and with royal robes as if the scroll itself was the idol. And unfortunately, it actually became that. Here's the menorah. This is the veil. Here's the bima or lectern from which their homilies were given. And here are the benches and the pillars. The, the important thing to notice is that in, in, in ancient times, whenever they built a synagogue, it was always built so that it was oriented to have worshipers facing Jerusalem. We'll come back and talk about this. In my view, that's actually quite brilliant because it keeps reminding us that this is not just a box. As we worship, we worship in anticipation of something 
or to them as a memorial of something. Let's talk now about, so what? What has this got to do with our worship, with this building? Now we get really touchy. Did we do it right? When we call our church buildings, what, what we call our church, here's my view, what we call our church buildings should affect our actions and focus inside them. For instance, designating a house of worship, the house of God, should have something to say about how it's designed. If this is the house of God, shouldn't it scream theology? On the other end, if this is the assembly, that's what you call it. When we were in England, we fellowship with the assembly. That's what they called it, the building, or the chapel. It affects it, or synagogue where people gather. Those might produce an anthropocentric design. One focuses on God. If it's the house of God, it should focus on God. If it's an assembly, then it would focus on where we are. Well, you can look at how churches were designed. This is a basic floor plan of Eastern Orthodox uh, buildings with a sanctuary there and then a holier place and then the nave and then the narthex. This is where the people would gather. Did you ever notice that in Orthodox buildings they don't have chairs for the worshipers? You never worship sitting down in the Orthodox church. It's too holy. But Orthodox churches, that's the basic floor plan, they are designed magnificently in not only in the outside, but let's go to the inside. of. Uh, we've got a couple of outside uh, designs of churches. Uh, let's move ahead to another one. Uh, I, I, we're, we're, I can't control that computer from here. Let's go a couple farther. Another one. Here, this. You can Google this, and if you want to look at the design of an Orthodox church, this is what it's like, and it's always magnificently painted and beautiful. It reflects a theology. Do you know why they do this? We can learn something from them. They do this to remind us that this world is not my home. And Inside the building, we have a countercultural environment. And so all the painting, all the beauty reflects our dream, our vision, eschatology, where we will be. Very deliberately, when you enter the church building, you are entering sacred space. And sacred space looks different from a shopping mall or a ba basketball arena. This is the house of God. The vocabulary, the contents, everything is counter, complete with a dome up on top representing heaven. They're always painted brilliantly. Is that what we should do? Let's have a look at a couple more here. That's the Orthodox. Let, uh, if you can bring uh, somebody. Oh, here's a classic, classic Gothic church structure. 
You've been to the cathedrals, some in this country, but all over Europe, this is what they did. Stone cold, aren't they? Whenever I visit there, and it seems always in wintertime, it's always so cold in there, they don't have proper heating. But the kind of stuff we do in this building is very hard there, isn't it? But notice where the focus is, and notice the cruciform design. Very intentional. They want us to focus on Christ, the altars at the front, and they want us to be reminded of the cross, even in the design. It's very, it's very theological. It may not be very practical, so that when you're up here, it's hard for these people to fellowship with these people. But there's more than one reason for coming to church, and this reflects it. Let's go to the next one. Here's a classic American free church design. Radial amphitheater keeps all near the action. Nobody's far away. It's good for proclaiming the word and a responsive liturgy so that we have the holy, holy, holy kind of thing, antiphonal kinds of thing, and we're all close. That's good. You know, all of these have their advantages, don't they? Let's go to the next one. Traditional processional. This is the kind of church I grew up in. In fact, it was an exaggeration. So here you had the ladies' entryway. Here you had the men's entryway. And when my wife and I got married, we came down this aisle. You never had to debate, which aisle are you going to come down? There's only one. So this is, it's all right for formal liturgical styles, but it's not helpful for developing community. Participants tend to see themselves as an audience. It's a problem. Good for some things. Let's go to the next one. The Brethren Assembly, which we attended when we were in Liverpool, uh, they had the previous one when we were there. When we came back and visited them 20 years later, this is what they did for their breaking of bread. They had the table in the middle and then the people sitting on both sides of the table, which is really, really, really helpful because this is a family meal. And it's okay to look into the other person's face as you're fellowshipping, isn't it? So they can... You can see the reflections of joy and sorrow, whatever else. We're actually communicating, you know, for those kinds of purposes. This is really good. This is helpful. But for the way we do our front stuff to the audience, not so good because you always have your back to somebody. But in this case, nobody has a back to anybody because they have no chairman of the meeting. It's all spontaneous. And this reflects the spontaneity. There's the lead elder, but he always sits somewhere with the rest of the people. He's not up on a pedestal. All right, let's go to the next one. Here's another cruciform. Here are two churches in the Reformed tradition. Well, this is the standard. Let's go to the next one. Here are two churches in the Reformed tradition. Uh, I think I have the inscription at the bottom if you give that to us. This is a South Church in Andover Congregational, 1860, Redeemer Presbyterian, Overland, Kansas. I've written them and asked them for permission to use this slide in the book. They, they didn't answer, so I don't, I don't think I actually have it in this. But you have to have permission when you do that. But notice, 
Notice what's going on in these. It's a large sanctuary with a very prominent, and often they have two pulpits, one for the business and one for the Word. You see the theology in that? That's intentional. The Word of God is what we've come for. This is an audience with God. And the temple is way, I mean, the pulpit is way up. Have you read Moby Dick? I love the story of the chapel there. It, the whole church is in the, in the form of a ship. And the pulpit, you have to go up this stairway. He describes it in very colorful language how the, the pastor goes up to the top and from there he thunders the voice of Moses from Mount Sinai. But there's a theology behind that. They want you to be sure that when you are in church for an audience with God, this is the Reformed tradition, the audience with God, God speaks from the mountain. And there are no questions about his authority. The ordained man speaks. Let's go to the next one. Well, that's, that, that's enough pictures. So what? If I were designing a church, what would it look like? And as you reflect on here, how... I mean, you tell me how much theology is in this building. When we built our church, we're, we're Mennonites, and we're the ultimate iconoclasts. We, we're great with music. We all sing. But you don't want to have anything visual because that's idolatry. I, we, my wife and I graduated from a small Bible college up in, it just shut down this last year. It's so sad. Um, but they built a new administration building and they built a prayer room. I, I'll never forget the debate about in that prayer room, should we have the classic picture of Jesus in the garden praying? And there was great gnashing of teeth over whether we should have even that kind of picture in there. We're iconoclasts. So when we built our church in 1943, the question was, should we have stained glass windows? The answer was no. You don't want to colorize this. It's detracting. But you know what they did? They put in windows this shape. That's as far as they got. But, the, but there was no color in the windows. If you put color in there, and I ask, really? We mentioned yesterday that in, in England, most cathedrals face east, and then they've got windows on that side and windows on that side. The ones on the north, is that north or is that south? That's east. You got this building turned around. <laughs> but to me, that's north for now. On the, on, on, on the north, you had the Old Testament scenes. On the south, you had New Testament scenes. Why that way? You never reverse them because the sun is on the south and you want the brightness of the gospel there. Undoing the darkness of the law. I've got serious problems with the theology of that. 
I wish they had had gospel images all the way through. And over there, you always, it ends with, or, or it, it features a picture of Moses on the mountain with a tablet. Have you ever seen a happy Moses? I, I have a book on, on um, the gospel according to Moses, collection of essays on Deuteronomy. When we were trying to figure out the cover, we looked all over the world for a picture of a happy Moses to put on there. This is a gospel. You can't, he's always mad. There's a theology in that. It's a very problematic theology. Even the Ten Commandments begin with gospel. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's gospel. That's theology. So why do we out? It's a problem. No wonder the Old Testament is a dead book because we've lost the gospel. Some principles. When we get Christians gather for worship, they gather for an audience with God. In my books, that affects design. Let's go to the next one. When we gather for worship, we gather for corporate acts of homage and submission by which we say, I am not worthy to be here. That could affect some design issues. Uh, next one. When we gather for worship, we gather with an eschatological vision. If I were designing a church, I would design it so that worshipers face the Mount of Olives. I would. I mean, you've got lots of space here. I grew up in northern Saskatchewan where everything is on a grid, north, south, east. I mean, it's, it's all square. We had Seventh-day Adventist neighbors who built their house on an angle, and I thought, how in the world are you ever going to know which end is north? You can't do that. It's chaos, really. Since when do we idolize north, south, east, west like that? If I were building a church, I would design it so that what... When the people are at worship and they look past that cross, they see all the way to the Mount of Olives. Why? Jesus is coming back. And guess what? I can hardly wait. There's a theology in orientation. That's what I would do. And with a large lot like this, you could still move the building. What else? When we gather for worship, we gather to edify and build up the body of Christ, which is why I actually like chairs rather than pews. I, I am far more traditional than I used to be. I become more and more like my father as I grow old. That's embarrassing. But this actually works. Because we do more than one thing in here. Some of the principles here are they fight against each other. And you have to then ask which ones are going to come to the fore. With pews, with, with chairs like this, you can actually let them serve you rather than you serving them. And I think that's an important. Next one, five. And these are all personal ruminations now, even more personal than the others. 
uh, orientation. Churches might be so designed that when believers gather for worship, their gaze is directed to the cross at the front of the building and beyond to Calvary, the source of our salvation, and to the Mount of Olives, the hope of our salvation. That's a theological... So that... And, if people come and visit the church somewhere along in, in the foyer, I would have a brochure about the design of this building. If you're going to do that, you have to educate your people and let the world know that nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. Okay, next one. Proportion and symmetry. In the past, houses of worship have been designed as microcosms of the cosmos, sacred worlds created in harmony with the plan of God and anticipation of the new world governed by rules of beauty and order. We've, we've got a symmetrical building here. That's fine. I love the sense that where God is, there is order. That's what the presence of God works. It should be that way even at our, in our homes. If our outside yard is chaos, it's a reflection on God. But, but we're Dutch then, and I guess we have to excuse other people, but in our world where I live is always a little Eden, and it becomes a spiritual mission for me to make this a paradise where people can come and enjoy. In fact, we have a waterfall coming from the top. It's on the front of my, my laptop, not on this one. But this is our little Engedi, place of retreat. God lives here. Um, next one. Focus. Since the community gathered is, by definition, the community of the redeemed, the saving grace of Christ should be expressed throughout the building in its design, decoration, symbolism. Why can't we have all kinds of reminders all over, all, all over the building of the gospel? They did those physical things in the churches because people were illiterate. We are becoming less and less literate these days. Uh, but we've also recognized that ours is a very visual age. That's why all these slides. It's a very visual age. So why can't we dress it up a little? Um, atmosphere. Since worship involves reverential acts of homage before God, every detail of the sanctuary should evoke awe not before human architects. I have a couple of pictures. Uh, can you... Here's Liverpool Cathedral. It took them 80 years to build. They started it just before the First World War, and they ended it, they finished it. They had the dedication when we were in Liverpool in 1978 to 80. It's a massive thing. If you've been to London, Trafalgar, the, the, Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square f fits in that tower. But I was so disturbed the first time I went into the building. Underneath that central tower, in, at the center, the crosshairs of this structure, guess what I see? Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, architect. Really? For the glory of whom? That's a problem. That's a problem. How we design this space should bring glory to God. This is not just a box. This is not just an empathy. Of course, it creates problems for church plants. They're renting a gym. Hey, 
If I were the pastor of a church plant, we would figure out ways to dress up that. We would have, you know, it's like a tabernacle. It's a palace in a suitcase. You can do this. Sending a signal that for this one and a half hours on a Sunday morning, this is sacred space. We have come to the presence of God. This is not a gym. You can call, that, call it that tomorrow. But like Mount Sinai, for 15 months, for this morning, God is here. And let's send a signal to the world that everything we do here is divine activity in praise of God. Lots more we could say, but that's enough. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us to think spiritually, theologically, biblically. Above all, we pray that you would help us in our bodies, which are the temples, the dwelling places of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. May we be residents of praise and honor. Open these lips to sing and proclaim your grace. Fill our worlds with your mercy, your presence. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.